I want to begin with a statement that sets the tone for what's to follow. The Christmas story is really a love story. The Christmas story is really a love story. God's love is the theme of the whole Bible. You can read in Genesis how He created man to be His image bearer in the world. Man was supposed to walk in God's ways and enjoy the fullness of God's love. But when you get to chapter 3, everything changes. Man rebelled. Man walked away from God and from God's love. And instead of reflecting God's image, this image became bent and scarred because of sin. Man pursued his own ways and his own desires. He stopped loving God and he began loving himself and pursuing his own interests. Man became the center of his own universe. And he had no interest in God or the things of God. In fact, the Bible says that we became enemies of God. We were under God's judgment. We were deserving of punishment. Deserving of death. And that's where the story could have ended. God could have left us to face the consequences of our rebellion. He could have left us hopeless and helpless. But He loved us too much for that. God's love reached out to us. We were sinners, but He loved us anyway. We were rebels, but He loved us anyway. We were running from God as fast as we could, but He loved us anyway. He loved us by sending a Savior. And it's easy to miss that with all of the lights and the trees and the tinsel and the gifts. But the Christmas story is the story of a loving God and a mighty Savior. Don't be fooled by the manger, okay? The baby who was born on that first Christmas came to conquer sin and death and the grave. He is mighty to save. His life was on a divine trajectory from the manger to the cross. He took the punishment that should have been ours. He was dead. He was buried. And then He rose again. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. This baby in a manger came to save. But here's the question that all of us have to answer. How will we respond to the Savior? Jesus did what He came to do. He was fully obedient to the plan of God. But how will you and I respond to what He's done for us? And I want us to take a look together at four characters from the Christmas story. We know them. We know the part they play in the story. But I want us to take a step back and look at their hearts. All of them heard the news. 
all of them had a personal encounter with the Savior. But how did they respond? Was there resistance? Was there pushback? Was there something that kept them from saying yes? And if they did say yes to the Savior, what did that look like? What were the marks of an authentic, heartfelt yes? And I want us to begin today by looking at Herod. You'll see I've upped my game. My PowerPoint has pictures today. This is Herod the Great. And uh, I want to share again the passage uh, that we uh, read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm reading from the, uh, the NIV. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. So the wise men, these magi, show up in the streets of Jerusalem and they're causing a stir because they're asking a question, where is this newborn king? Where is the king of the Jews? We've seen his star, we've followed his star, and we've come to worship. And the gospel writer tells us how King Herod, Herod the Great, responded to all of this. He was troubled. And that's an amazing word if you look it up in the Greek. It means that he was stirred up. There was a commotion that was happening inside. His heart used to be quiet, but now there's fear and there's dread. Well, what in the world was causing all of this turmoil? Let me share a little bit about what we know about Herod from the history books. Herod was obsessed with power. He was appointed king of the Jews by the Romans, and for the next 30 years, he was absolutely convinced that people were trying to take his throne. And over the course of those 30 years, he arrested his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, and three, count them, three of his own sons charged them with treason and put them to death. So when he hears from these wise men that there's a baby born, a baby claiming to be king, he's not excited, he's not warm and welcoming, he's troubled. He's agitated. This baby, this Savior, is a threat. A threat to his throne. Now, Herod's been dead for 2,000 years. But I'm here to tell you that this same kind of heart, a troubled heart, is still alive and well. People are still troubled by the coming of the Savior. And the reason is still the same. They're afraid of giving up the throne. 
You see, there's a throne deep inside your heart. And whoever sits on that throne has the right to rule and reign over your life. And we love sitting on that throne. Let's be honest. We get drunk with the power. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do or what to say or what to think. We like the idea of being kings and queens even if it's only over our lives and nothing else. But there are two problems with that. Number one, that's not your throne. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's not your throne. You were created by God. And the throne inside your heart was created by God. It's His throne and it's His right to rule and reign. You're nothing but a thief and a pretender when you sit on that throne. And number two, you're leading your kingdom to disaster. Sin always brings the same result. It brings death and destruction. And as long as we try running our own lives, that's going to be our destination. We're going to face judgment and we're going to face death. We desperately need a Savior. We desperately need for God to retake the throne and make our life what it was meant to be. Only He can put us on the right course, okay? Only He can save us. You and I, we can't afford a troubled heart. Herod died a miserable painful death, and he died without hope. He had wealth. He had power in this life. He was the most powerful man in his whole kingdom, all of Judea. But in the end, it meant nothing without the Savior. Let Jesus sit on the throne of your heart. And let Him change your destination. Let Him change your destiny. It's His throne. So that's Herod's heart. The troubled heart. I want us to take a look at the innkeeper next. You remember the innkeeper from the story, I'm sure. I want to read now from uh, Luke's Gospel. Luke tells us this part of the story. Luke... Chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. If you remember the story, the Romans ordered a census. Everyone throughout the empire was required to return to their ancestral city. Joseph was from David's line. So when the time came, he and his wife Mary had to travel to David's hometown. That's Bethlehem. So they set off. It's a long, hard journey. Uh, it takes them partly through desert country, 
Uh, it's 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it probably would have taken them 8 to 10 days to make this trip. No rest stops. No restaurants. No Holiday Inn Express. Walking through the desert. Joseph walking. Mary riding on a donkey. Day and night. Dusty trails. Mary's almost ready to deliver. And they finally arrive in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's not a big city like Jerusalem. It's usually a quiet town, but now it's bustling uh, with all of these visitors and soldiers and census takers. The streets are jam-packed. Mary and, and Joseph push their way to the inn, and they try to get a room for the night. And even though Mary's ready to deliver, the innkeeper says, I'm sorry, folks, there's no room. I'm filled to capacity. Every room, every space that I've got is filled. I can't possibly make arrangements for you. And today, there are still many people who suffer from the innkeeper's heart. There's no room. No room for the Savior. Busyness seems to be a fact of life in the 21st century. We can't even have a quiet moment, a moment to rest and catch our breath. We have to be busy all the time. And that's why there are people who say, I just don't have time for Jesus. I'm too busy. I have so many other interests. I have so many other commitments. There's just no room in my life for a Savior. They think life is like a giant buffet. I'll take a little bit of this. I'll take a little bit of that. And by the time they get to Jesus, their plate is full. Their plate is overflowing. And they say, I've got no more room. I read something interesting a couple of weeks ago. It seems like a lot of this busyness in our lives is something we actually choose to do. It's a way that we try to keep ourselves from feeling like our lives are empty and pointless. Listen to what this writer says. And you can hear the the tongue in the cheek. Obviously, your life can't possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy. Completely booked. In demand every hour of every day. See, we're on a search. We're on a search for meaning. And it reminded me of the book of Ecclesiastes. Those of you who like the Old Testament. The writer of Ecclesiastes is on a search too. He's looking for meaning. And he samples everything that life has to offer. Work, pleasure, wealth, honor, accomplishments. His plate is full, but his life is still empty. He keeps searching for 12 chapters. And finally, at the end of the last chapter of the book, he comes to his conclusion. This is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
For this is the whole duty of God. Know God. Fear God. Make room for the Savior because at the end of the day, He's the only thing that really matters. The innkeeper's heart, his, uh, his heart was full, but he didn't realize he was actually empty without the Savior. Don't fill up on the things the world has to offer. Only Jesus brings life. Only Jesus brings hope. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus satisfies. Don't fill up on the stuff of the world. Get Jesus. Get Jesus. That's the heart of the innkeeper. A heart that's full of the wrong things. Then I want us to take a look at the wise men. Matthew, again, tells us their story. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We pick up after they've uh, talked with Herod. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Now these wise men were from the east, probably Persia. They studied the stars looking for signs. And together they saw a star rising in the night sky that signaled the birth of a king. So they set off across the desert. Hours turned to days. Days turned to weeks. This hard, hard journey across the desert. And finally, they arrived in Judea, the home place of God's people. We already saw how they came to Jerusalem and they met with Herod. Herod's heart was troubled, but... These wise men, they were determined. And as you make your way through these verses, you can get a glimpse of what was happening in their hearts. And the first thing that really caught my eye was their joy. When they saw the star again, when, when the sun went down and the stars came out and they saw the one star that signaled the birth of the king, they were overjoyed, filled with joy. See, they, this wasn't an ordinary star. And this wasn't an ordinary king. This was the Savior sent by God. And they were excited. They were rejoicing at the prospect of getting to see this newborn king with their own eyes. And when they came to the house, they saw the baby and they fell down. That's the custom of the day. Uh, you, you showed respect and honor to a king by bowing down. Now these were men of status and honor. Tradition says 
that they were kings themselves. But it didn't matter. They bowed down before this little baby, this little newborn king. But Matthew says something else that's pretty amazing. Not only did the wise men bow, they also worshipped. See, they realized this was more than just a flesh and blood king. This was the king. This was the Messiah. This was God fulfilling the promise to send a Savior. And so when they entered His presence, they worshipped. When I read these verses, it reminded me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Those of you who grew up learning the Romans road, you probably remember these verses. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So how do we enter the presence of the Savior? We come, we enter into His presence with worship in our hearts. We bow. Now, I don't mean you have to bow on your knees. That's fine. But I'm talking about the heart. What's happening in the heart? Something happens when we worship. We lower ourselves and we lift up Jesus. We lower ourselves by confessing our sins. We confess that we've sinned against God. We confess that even our very best isn't enough to satisfy the commands of God. We see ourselves as we really are. We're sinners. And then we lift up Jesus. We confess Him. We confess that He is the Savior. We Confess that He's the Son of the living God. He's the one who rose from the dead to save me from my sins. We confess it with our hearts and and our mouths and we submit ourselves to His Lordship. That's a worship. A worshipful heart. So these wise men, they rejoiced and and then they worshipped. And then finally they gave. See, they didn't come empty-handed. They were... uh, going across the desert for weeks, but they prepared. They came with gifts. Uh, And I'm not saying that you have to give something to be saved. Absolutely not. The Bible says that salvation is the free gift of God. But their giving was a proof that this worship of theirs was real. It was authentic. It was more than just talk. They backed it up with action. And so, you and I, we should be willing to to test ourselves. Do we really have a faith and a worship that's real? Have we really received Jesus into our hearts and lives? There's a verse in 2 Corinthians. Paul writing again to Christians in Corinth. Chapter 13, verse 5. Listen to what he says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You know, I can't think of anybody in the Gospels who encountered Jesus and wasn't changed. And when Jesus takes the throne in your life, there's a new life that happens. There's a new hope that you have. And it changes everything. The way we act, the way we think, the way we see the world around us. We have a desire now for the things of God. We have a desire to fellowship and to open up His Word and to be a part of the work that He's doing. But I hope you understand that it's entirely possible to come to church and sing the songs and do all of the churchy things and lull ourselves into believing we've been saved when we haven't. Paul asks a pretty blunt question. Can you pass the test? Take a hard look at yourself. Is Jesus real in your life? I'm not asking if you come to church every week. I'm not asking if you drop money into the offering plate. I'm not asking if you've memorized the praise songs. Is Jesus real in your life? Is there proof of a change in your life because Jesus has taken up residence? I'm challenging everyone in the room today to test yourselves. Examine yourselves. No tricks. No lies. Is Jesus living in you? And if you can't say yes to that question, I pray that you will leave today meeting Jesus and knowing Jesus for yourself. These wise men came rejoicing. These wise men came worshiping. A genuine, authentic, heartfelt worship. And then I want to close with the shepherds. I love the shepherds. There's so much I can say about the shepherds. So much that I'll talk about them next week. (laughs) I I love their part in the story. You know, it's nighttime. Uh, They're out in the fields near uh, Bethlehem. Uh, There's probably a fire going so they can keep themselves warm. The sky's dark. Maybe a few stars peeking through. And then, without any warning, an angel bursts into the sky above them. He's glowing with the glory of God and he brings them an amazing message. Today, the Savior has been born. Today, over the hill, in the town next door, the Savior has been born. And he gives them a sign and he invites them to go into the town and see for themselves. So the shepherds have a meeting. And they know what they have to do. They've got to go see this thing for themselves. Let's read the read these verses quickly out of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
and then drop down to verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And then verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. When the, uh, when the shepherds have their meeting, they know they've got to go and they've got to go now. And the Scripture tells us they hurried off. I love the way it, uh, it uh, reinforces this rush, this excitement that's propelling them to go into the town. You know, when they, when they heard the news, they, they didn't pull out their planners. Do we have any folks in the room that like their planners? They, they weren't looking at the calendar seeing when they could fit it into their schedule. They hurried off. Right then, they dropped everything and they sped their way into the town. Hearing about it wasn't enough. They had to go and they had to go now. There was a drive there was a determination in their hearts. It reminds me of, uh, of a verse, again, out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6.2. The last part of the verse says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. God is a God of the now. God wants you to be saved. And He's inviting you now. His Holy Spirit is wooing you now. And when God speaks to you and stirs your heart, He's burdening you now. So you can respond now. He wants you to come to Jesus now. So if you hear His voice, don't put it off. Be like the shepherds. Hurry off. And meet God yourself. I want you to consider something as you think about the story of these shepherds. There was something sacrificial about how the shepherds responded to this invitation from the angels. They had to leave the sheep behind. They hurried off. Okay, it was grab and go. There was no time for a, a bag lunch. They just headed off to the village. And these sheep, think about this, these sheep were their livelihood. There's no paycheck. There's no 401k. There's just a flock of sheep. But they left them behind as they went looking for the Savior. And it reminded me of one of the parables that Jesus told. In Matthew chapter 13... We have Jesus preaching to the crowds and He says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. 
There's only one way to come into the kingdom of God, and that's through Jesus. And with this parable, Jesus was answering the question, how important is the kingdom of heaven? How important is it to come to Jesus? And here's what he tells us. It's not just an important thing. It's the most important thing. You should desire it more than anything. You should pursue it more than anything. And you should be willing to give up anything so you can have it. That's the heart of the shepherd. They left those sheep behind because the Savior was more important than their livelihood. I want us to see one last thing. The shepherds make this long hike to Bethlehem. They go from house to house looking for the baby. And when they finally arrive, they find everything exactly as the angel told them. They found Mary. They found Joseph. They found the baby wrapped in these cloths, lying in a manger. This was the Savior of the world. Right in front of their eyes. And they left, Luke tells us, they left with praise on their lips. They were praising and glorifying God because meeting the Savior should produce praise. The Bible says that when you come to Jesus, you become a new creation. Think back to what happened in the garden. There was sin and death and the curse. But when you meet the Savior, He overcomes those things in you. And He breathes new life in you. And because of the work of the Savior, you can know God again. You can walk with God again. Every day in this life and throughout eternity. And knowing that and experiencing that for yourself should bring a hallelujah to your lips. I want to grab one more Old Testament verse, okay? Forgive me. You might remember Moses. We talked about Moses a couple of weeks. Exodus chapter 15. God miraculously brings His people through the Red Sea and they stand on dry ground on the other side and they look back. And what do they see? These waters of the Red Sea return and they completely destroy the enemy. And what's the first thing they do? When they see all of this with their eyes, they praise God. Listen to uh, Exodus 15.2. This is known as the Song of Miriam. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. Do you see the connection? If we've experienced God's saving power in our lives, He's deserving of our praise. It's natural. If we've seen how big God is, and if we've seen everything that God has saved us from, we respond 
with praise. We're, we're like those ancient Hebrews. We're standing on the other side. And we're looking back with awe and excitement. And we say, you are my salvation. You are my God. And I will praise you. That is the heart of the ancient Hebrews. That is the heart of the shepherd. And that should be your heart and mine. A heart that's filled with praise for the saving power of God. A little baby. A mighty Savior. So we've looked at a lot of hearts. But as I bring it to a close, I want to make it personal. The Word of God is always personal. What's happening in your heart? Are you sitting on the throne yourself? Are you keeping the Savior from taking His rightful place as King in your heart and life? Are you filling your heart with other things? Are you so busy with other things that there's no room for the Savior? Let today be the day that you meet the Savior yourself. And for those of you who claim the name of Jesus... Do you have a heart like the wise men? Are you giving God a heartfelt worship? Are you filled with joy knowing that you belong to Him? Do you have a shepherd's heart? Are you sharing what you've experienced? Are you praising God for who He is and for the saving work that He's done in your life? I want to invite you to stand We're going to have a song of invitation and I want us to prepare our hearts with a quick word of prayer. Stand if you would. I thank you, Jesus, for the Christmas story. And I thank you for the way that you help us to peer into the hearts of all of these characters from the story. But God, in these next few moments, I want us to peer into our own hearts. Help us, God, to see ourselves as we really are. Help us to take off the blinders, to be real, to be transparent, to be honest before You. God, if there's anyone in the room who doesn't know You, God, let this be the day. You are a God of the now. Let now be the now. God, give courage. Every one of us, God, let us have courage to take a step of faith today. Whatever it might be, God, that we need to do, Give us a courageous faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.